going to start this morning, uh, we're starting a new series this morning, and I'm going to start by reading uh, a little bit. I don't do that often, but uh, this struck me, and it was better said than I could say it on my own. So uh, listen in, if you would. This is from a book called, uh, it's a brand new book called From the Way of the Warrior. We live in a world that seems to be marked and defined by senseless violence. We now have a generation, my children's generation, maybe yours too, whose only impression of human history is an era of global terrorism. Remember when terrorism, if you're my age, terrorism used to be over there? Our children can no longer go to school without the, with the assumption of safety, but they've got to live under this eminent threat that at any moment a senseless massacre could take place. From Islamic extremists to white supremacists, hate seems to be the order of our day. It seems pretty clear to me that there is something terribly wrong in our world. The author writes, I, like so many others, long for peace. I would give anything to see the end of the violence. Where wars once seemed solely the concern of soldiers, we now know the problem runs much deeper than places on maps over there. I've been asked many times over the years, why does the Bible depict God as a God of war? Maybe your friends have asked you that too. Because you can't escape the fact there are many battles recorded in scriptures. In fact, in the ancient world, the language of war was common. And for many ancient people, it was almost interwoven into the language of faith. I'm always reminded that it's not God who created humanity in the violence, but rather it is humanity that chooses violence. That's our history. Both as a species and as individuals, we would have a history of even more wars. This is the truth. We would have a history of even more wars if God did not exist. Our past is one of conflict, of division, of greed, of power, a constant battle where nation rises against nation and brother against brother. This is not the history of God. This is the history of us. The story of God is a story of peace. God's tainted by being part of our story. I like that line. What's the story of peace look like when it's dropped in the middle of humanity that knows only conflict and violence? The language of God as a warrior came to exist because he intervenes into the wars for the defenseless. He's heard the cries of a people battling slavery, and he has come to set them free. So yes, it was a declaration of war against injustice, oppression, and humanity. It was Cain who killed Abel. But it was God who held him accountable and yet still protected him from further violence. It would be easy to blame God for what we've created and to impugn his character because he works to bring peace into our stories. I've become convinced that more than any of us, God understands the war that rages within and around us and he longs to lead us to the end of violence. We, this is such a great line. Listen now. We are a people of war because we are a people at war. All the violence we see in the world is but a small glimpse of the violence that churns in us. The war that rages within us, it eventually boils over and it sets the world on fire. I'm convinced the only path towards world peace is inner peace. Even as I write this book, I'm surrounded by an endless number of people, people I love, people I care deeply about, who struggle with inner demons that put them at daily risk. You know them. Suicide has become a global epidemic, even among the educated and affluent. Those who would seem to have the most reason to live can't think of one. Depression's at epidemic levels. We can't design medication fast enough to keep us from drowning in the abyss that exists in us. 
Otherwise, talented, gifted, extraordinary human beings are paralyzed today by anxiety, overwhelmed by stress, and a growing number of young, and young men and women who have never gone to war are being diagnosed with PTSD. The sudden outbreaks of violence that have marked the history of our children can no longer be seen as an anomaly. They have to be addressed as a cultural state of emergency. I'm tired of losing people I love. We cannot sit idly by hoping the problems will somehow self-correct. Our only hope for societal peace is inner peace, and inner peace does not come without a battle. The struggle is real. This is, by the way, the way of Jesus. This is how he came to bring peace on earth. Others hoped he would call out an army, incite a rebellion, use his power to topple an empire, but Jesus chooses an inner peace. He didn't surrender to the status quo uh, to, to succumb to the inevitable rule of oppressive powers. Jesus had absolute confidence that his inner revolution would ultimately prevail because he knew the way to peace. He understood the source of all wars. He knew it all began in the human heart. It is the way of Jesus that is the ancient path to inner peace. It is the way of Jesus that gives us victory. Victory. Ultimately, here's the goal for Easter as we launch into this. Together we will discover that the cross, which is the ultimate symbol of death and war and violence, the same cross which was meant to kill, becomes our victory. Now, if you're the pastor of a church, and I've been here a long time, over 20 years, and, and I talk a lot, too much, most of you tell me. Um, and so every year, Easter and Christmas come with great regularity. And every year, I don't know if anybody's, if you're aware of this, the story doesn't really change. It's fairly old at this point, and most of you know it. And so as the pastor, what you're trying to always do is figure out a way that you can kind of turn this diamond to see a new facet of it. And so every year when Christmas and Easter comes, I start thinking, wow, how do I make this story? How do I help people to see this story again anew? And this year, what I started realizing was, if you look at the scriptures, there's so much of the word victory and this concept of a battle tied to Jesus and Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that because of Christ's victory over the grave, you and I have victory. So I started thinking, you know what, let's tie this concept for Easter, this, this Easter, to the concept of victory. Victory in our lives, victory over fear, victory over doubt, victory over death. And I was really excited about it, and I thought I knew what I was talking about until my son invited me to go to church with him a few weeks ago. Uh, he, he's a, a young, 20-something kind of hipster guy, and uh, so he invited me to church. I said, well, where's your church? He said, it's in an abandoned um, warehouse in Brooklyn. And I said, What? And uh, he said, yeah. And so uh, I headed in. And when we got there, I was easily 25 years older than anybody in the place. Easy. And by far, I had the saggiest jeans. There was no doubt about it. And uh, so church started, and everybody was sitting around for a while. And, um, you know, it was funny because, like, the milk was almond and skim. Those were the two choices, you know, and I'm like, yeah, well, make perfect sense. And so I sat there for a while. I didn't sit there. Everybody was standing talking. And... He had told me church started at 5.30. It was like 5 to 6, 10 to 6. I looked at him. I'm like, I thought you said this starts at 5.30. And he goes, it does. I said, well, nobody's doing anything. He goes, well, this is what we do for the first half hour. I'm actually thinking, well, actually, that is kind of church, right? Like, you know, you're getting together and all the rest. And long story short, church starts, and uh, 
they had a guest speaker that night, and uh, I knew he was going to be there, and that was one of the reasons I chose that night to go. There's a guy by the name of Erwin McManus. I don't know if any of you know who he is. Uh, I heard him speak maybe the first time 15 years ago, and he has a way of tapping in. This guy is 60 years old, and he had these 20-somethings eating out of his hand that night. And you ever have an idea, like, we're going to talk about victory at Easter, and then you go to a talk and you go, yeah, I should just have you come talk about Victory at Easter because, like, I can't even come close to anything you're sharing. And I walked out of there that night in the way I hope you're going to walk out of here on Easter Sunday. Just changed. Resting in the fact that there is victory, that, that there is a war, most of it's within, and that I can win. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. Um, let's jump in. It's not far off in the story of Israel that we've actually been talking about. We were in this series, 40 for 40, looking at the 40 most influential chapters in all the Bible. And if you've been with us, here's what we discovered, that God had created Israel to be this unique reflection to all of humanity. If humanity wanted to know what God looked like, they didn't need to look for a statue. They only needed to look at his people. And therefore, they didn't need to have a king because God would be their king. And when Israel was blessed, people would understand it wasn't because of some king's rule, it was because of their God. But as we discussed, you know the story of Israel. They wanted to be like all the other cool kids in town, so they wanted a king. And so God said, you know, you shouldn't take one. I mean, I'll let you have one if you want one, but he warned them of all the possible things that could happen. And, and, and you remember we talked about it. You had tall Saul. He was the first king, right? And, and he didn't do them any good. And then David came on the scene, and David was a bit of a mixed blessing, but, but David kind of unified Israel together and had this one kingdom. And, and then David's son took the throne. And what you start to see is uh, all of, you see this in the books in, the, in your Old Testament, the Old Testament of the Bible, first king and second kings is really just one long story there's a lot of bad kings in fact most everything that God had said is going to happen did happen and so to combat the influence of these kind of dastardly figures in the Bible God began to raise up what we call prophets you know some of them. Isaiah, we read a lot of his prophecy at Christmas time. and so God would raise up prophets to speak speak into the power of the day to say to them, hey, this is not the way God has called his people. You're leading them the wrong way. Now, Elijah, I don't know if you've heard that name. Elijah was one of these prophets. And he was raised up to confront a king and a wife. I'm sure you've heard of his wife. His, the, the, the king, he was over the northern region. Israel now had already split into two. King Ahab is running the northern region. And he's married to a famous woman. Anybody know what King Ahab's wife's name is? Jezebel. Jezebel. Has anybody named their daughter Jezebel lately? No, because you don't even have to go to church to know this is not going to turn out well, right? Like anybody that's married to Jezebel, and here's why. Because Ahab and Jezebel are doing everything that God said don't do. Not only did they take the mantle of being a king, they violated the first utterance, which was, my people shall have no other gods but me. Well, Jezebel comes on the scene, and Jezebel starts to say, I like the Canaanite god uh, Baal. And in fact, I like a lot of gods. And so the northern kingdom begins to worship a bunch of gods, uh, the most prevalent of which was this god of the Canaanite people, a god called Baal. This is all kind of historical information. And so this is a nation that has just become a mess. And God raises up Elijah, who is this you know what, right? Confrontational prophet. And he's going to go challenge Ahab and Jezebel. 
Now, you're, you're first introduced to him in 1 Kings, I think about the 17th or 18th chapter. And he comes and he finds Ahab uh, and Jezebel and he says to them, you have led Israel astray. God said there's not supposed to be any other gods. You are worshiping. You are having our people worship all the other gods. So here's the deal. I'm not going to allow to reign in this country again until I say so. Can you imagine being that cocky, right? You know what? Rain, stop. And it's not going to start again until I say so. Now, I would, I would be of not enough faith to say that. And if I did, I'd be like, oh, God, please don't let it rain again. Please, please, please. You know? but, but, but this is not who Elijah is. Elijah was pretty confident. And here's the crazy thing. It doesn't rain. For like three and a half years, it doesn't rain. As you can imagine, the damage the drought is causing in the land, there's severe famine. And in the interim, in, in the midst of this famine, God is providing for Elijah, and he's doing some crazy things, okay? Now remember, we're, we believe in a God that is beyond what we see. So by the very nature of believing in a God, right, who resurrects his son from the grave, right, we believe in the mysterious, we believe in the miraculous, and so part of this story is that God is providing miraculously for Elijah. God says, go to a certain place, and I'm going to have a raven bring you food. And a raven begins to bring Elijah food. And then Elijah comes across a, a, a mother with an only child, and the only child dies. And Elijah goes to God and takes the baby and goes, Lord, would you please bring life back to this baby? And God hears Elijah's prayer and, and raises the baby from the dead. And so now... I mean, he was, I mean, he, look, if you can stop the rain, you're already pretty cocky, right? And now birds are feeding you and children are coming back to life. And so he's feeling his stuff. And so he decides he's going to kind of, well, actually, he doesn't decide. God tells him, I want you to go back and further confront the people in the name of God. And so here's where we pick up the story. Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said... How long, this is such a good question, this is not the question that has been haunting me all week, I'm going to ask you that one in a little bit. This question I'm going to ask you later is going to mess you up all week, okay? I guarantee it's re you're going to write me going, why'd you ask me that stupid question? This is the second best question. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. It just so reminds me of, like, what I'm capable of doing, right? Like, John, if God is God, trust him. If your 401k is God, trust that. But what, why do you walk around not sure who's God? So Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. You've killed all the rest of them. But Baal has 450 prophets, so here's what we're going to do. Here's cocky Elijah he says, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but don't set fire to it. I'm going to prepare the other bull. I'll put it on the wood, but I won't set fire to it either. And then you call on the name of your God and I'll call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He's God. Pretty cool challenge. Pretty dramatic way of, of you know, deciding this. And so the 450 prophets of Baal build their altar and they pray and they pray and they pray and nothing. In fact, I remember when McManus was talking about this, he had such a good line. He said this, and this is something maybe you, you and I have to realize. It's really hard to move the hand of a God that doesn't exist. 
I mean, we try. And so, this is, this is so rich, okay? At, at noon, Elijah begins to make fun of him. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's God. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Or busy. Maybe he's traveling. As I understand it, one of these translations is actually, you know, don't blame me, uh, I didn't write it. Maybe he's constipated. That's what he's just like ripping in him. Man, your God, he's all backed up, man. I guess he's not going to come through. Maybe when he gets off the hopper, he'll be right back out. But I see that he's not helping you right now. And so that's what's going on here. Maybe he's sleeping. He's got to be woken up. So they shouted louder and louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as were their, was their custom because their God demands sacrifice. Midday passed. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice because their God demands sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. It's really hard to get the attention of a God that doesn't exist, isn't it? It's a real bummer. And so now Elijah, who God had used, let's go through this now, he has, uh, God had used them to stop the rain and uh, to raise a child to life who had died, uh, be fed by a raven. Uh, now he's kind of feeling himself, and he gets a little cocky. Not really about his power, but about God's. So he says, you know what, let's make this trick a little bit harder. He said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on my offering, on, on my wood. And so they do it. And then he goes, okay, do it again, he said, and they did it again. Then he goes, okay, do it a third time. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar, even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. He's cocky. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today. Remember, what was Israel supposed to do? They didn't need a king because God was going to be their king, and they were going to reflect to the world who he was so that they would know who he was, that he loved them, and that, that he'd be glorified so people would turn to him. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me, though, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. What is God always interested in? The hearts of people. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Which you would think, of course they did. Now this would have been a fun scene, unless you were Jezebel, back at the house. Couldn't help but re be reminded of our, the, the 2018 election where the term nasty woman came from. I think Jezebel could be the first original nasty woman. Because here's what happened. Ahab goes home and tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. May the gods deal with me, her gods. Notice it's plural, not your God. May the gods I still believe in despite all the things I've seen. May those gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, because tomorrow, not today, not yesterday, because tomorrow, you're going to die. I'm going to make you like one of them. Now, now, walk with me through this. 
This is cocky Elijah. He has uh, already stopped the rain for three and a half years. Fed by a bird, raised a kid. Overcame a constipated God. Uh, you know, flooded out his thing. And then he actually turns the rain back on, so it starts to rain again. And this woman comes and says to him, you're going to die tomorrow. Now, if you're Elijah, you are a prophet of the Most High God. You speak, you speak truth to power. If you're Elijah, you have called down water and rain. If you're Elijah, you have raised the dead to life. If you're Elijah and some woman comes and tells you, I mean, unless it was my wife, of course, but some woman comes and tells you that you're dead, what would your reaction be? I mean, let's be honest, what would you say? Of course you would. You'd be like, oh, don't make me laugh. You're going to do something to me? Do you know who I am? But that's not what his reaction was, which is why I love the Bible so much, because it always, you would never write these stories if they weren't true, because it always makes the followers of God look so, I don't know, pathetic, because so often we are, right? Like, we, we, we are like the, the people that he talked to earlier. Like, if you, why don't you, if you believe, why don't you really trust and follow? And so this, uh, this prophet of God, this, this purveyor of the power of God, this woman comes to him and says, you know what, I'm going to kill you tomorrow. Here's what Elijah did. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Does this make any sense? Think about it. Enter the story. This makes zero sense. Not only does it make zero sense, why would you, if you were trying to convince people of who Elijah was, why would you write this story down? You could easily have skipped this part of the story because it doesn't exactly make him look good. It doesn't make any sense. Or, or, given the lives of people like you and I, people of God who know the power of God, who've seen the power of God, who have stories in our past about God, how he's moved in our lives. Many of you could say, I could tell you God is real because I'm here this morning, right? How he's moved in our yesterdays. Is it possible this story is here and makes perfect sense because we tend to be people confident in God's activities in our yesterdays, but as soon as somebody threatens our tomorrows, we get pretty scared. And we run. Story continues when he came to Beersheba in Judah. That's the southern kingdom. Now he has left the northern kingdom where he was a prophet to the northern king. And he's hiding out in the southern kingdom. It's probably at least 100 miles away. He's been gone for weeks. When he gets to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the bush to fall asleep. There is incredible irony here, right? Why is he running? To save his... And what is his prayer? We are a strange lot, we followers of God, aren't we? What I love here is the truth that so many of you need to hear. Listen, this is really, we all need to hear it and be reminded. You can be a man or a woman of God. You can have great faith. He can move, have moved historically, miraculously in your life. And yet you can wake up some days and find yourselves in some pretty dark places. Underneath some broom bushes, if you will. Depressed, lonely, suicidal. See, as followers of Jesus... 
especially if you, were, you, you came to, to, to know him through certain different kind of religious upbringings. We're told that we should be joyful, and, and we should be. But so many of us don't experience life with this just constant flow of sunshine and bubbles. And so what happens is around churches and around religious people, a stigma builds up, which makes its way into our gatherings. And it says subtly, not not overtly, but subtly, you know, if you're depressed or anxious or suicidal, you can't be a Christian. Those things are mutually exclusive. You can't want to kill yourself and be a follower of Jesus. But you can Elijah did. Some of you need to know that, that it's okay not to kill yourself, but to know that follow people that know God and have experienced God and tasted God can find themselves in pretty dark places, fearful, wondering about tomorrows. Elijah did. Abraham did. Peter did. See, when this happens, the church ceases to be a place where people come for healing and understanding, and instead it becomes a place for them to go and hide. And people with problems stay out there, and people who have it all together come in here. At least it seems that way. I'm here to tell you that this is not true. Almost every council, you see, you're a good-looking lot of people. You have nice cars and big homes. And so what tends to happen is we all sit here, right, and everybody looks next to them and goes, ah, he's really got it together. Look at that couple. Do you see how well-behaved their children are? And what I would tell you is I spend a lot of, I spend two days a week probably doing counseling. Almost every counseling session that I have starts with this. I'm not like the other people in this church. Why? Well, because my marriage isn't right. I drink too much. I've gotten myself into a big financial mess. I've made some really bad decisions. My kids are on drugs or cutting themselves. What I want you to know is it's okay to have Elijah moments as a follower of God. It's okay. In fact, God addresses it so clearly. If you're around the church, maybe you've heard of the name Charles Spurgeon. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the name Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is like a really famous Christian guy. He taught in the 1800s. He's known as the Prince of Preachers. He is taught in every, um, every seminary around the country. He would be teaching out of Charles, uh, Charles Spurgeon's writings. Here's one of his writings. I am the subject of depression so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. But I always get back again by this. I know that I trust Christ. I have no reliance but in him. If he fails, I shall fail with him. But if he doesn't, I won't. And see, so Elijah is just like Spurgeon, who's just like all of us on our worst days. He believes in God. He's seen him at work. But the thought of what tomorrow could bring outweighs all of the things he's seen yesterday. And he gets himself to a pretty dark place just Kill me. And it is in that dark place the Lord comes. And here's what he said to him. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. 
You almost sense the, the care and compassion of God. And he ate and drank. But then, like me, he laid down again. That's how deep the funk was. And here's how great the love of God is. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat. For the journey's too much for you. I want you to hear the understanding of God in this because this is not the voice that you hear from God on your dark days. The voice you hear from God on your dark days would be something like this. Elijah, how could you possibly be so unfaithful to me? Elijah, how could you be so ungrateful to me? Elijah, you're such a failure. What kind of Christian are you? You're out of my plans for you. You're out of my will. Your lack of faith has made it so I can't use you. That's not what he said. He says, I understand this. I know that you're a human being. It's too much for you. Now get up and eat because I'm going to go with you. And so he got up and drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went to a, into a cave and spend, spent the night. And when he gets to the cave, he again crawls back into his depression. He gets towards the back of the cave. And here comes the question. I'm telling you, ask yourself this question all week. Some of you, are gonna, some of you need to hear this question. All of us need to hear it. I, don't, I, I can't overstate how good the question is. It really bothered me this week. And the word of the Lord came to him in the cave and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah, what are you doing in this cave? And it's so haunting because if you, if you know the scripture, you remember when God finds Adam and Eve right after sin? Remember, they go and they hide, and God shows up and he asks a question. Anybody know what the question he says right after the fall? Where are you? Does God know where Adam is? He's all-seeing, he's all-powerful. Does God know why Elijah's in the cave? He's all-seeing, he's all-powerful. So why is he asked the question? Because he wants Elijah to think about it for a second himself. Why am I here Elijah, what are you doing? See, I love the question so much because I think it's the same one God would show up and ask us in whatever cave it is that you have run to because your tomorrow brings a little bit more fear than the certainty of the blessings yesterday. Despite the power of God in our yesterdays, our tomorrow still seems so uncertain. And so when we get scared, we run, we hide, we chase down other gods, we check our 401k account, we make sure that we're on track for the promotion at the end of the year. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. And maybe it's a question you need to hear coming from God to you in that relationship that you should not be in this morning. Tina, what are... By the way, I tried to pick names that I didn't know anybody would be here with, so don't think I'm talking to you. (laughs) Tina, what are you doing here? In that hotel bar on the business trip way after midnight, Jim, what are you doing in here? The question is so powerful. Oh, it was driving me nuts this week. All the time. Because it really gets to the root of what I'm doing, what I'm giving my life to. Uh, To the guy caught up in his job, his marriage is falling apart, his kids don't know him, the baseball game's going on, but he's still in the corner office. Mike, what are you doing in there? 
in the house or the car you bought that you know you can't really afford. Michelle, what are you doing in that Lexus? In front of the computer long after everyone has gone to bed, Tim, what are you doing there? I can hear God asking it to King David. Remember, we, we talked about King David last week. In the spring of the year when kings go off to fight, David stayed home. David, what are you doing in the cat? David, what are you doing up on that rooftop? Peter, what are you doing hiding in those bushes? I don't know what cave the fear of tomorrow has gotten you to run to despite the victories of yesterday. But the question that God would say to you this morning is, what are you doing there? And so, now it's a rhetorical question, and, and that's what I love, because God asks a rhetorical question, and of course, he, like us, answers it. Well, let me give you all the reasons. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They tore down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. I have these conversations with God all the time. Do you realize, God, I'm a, I'm a pastor? You know what these people are doing to me? Why won't my children listen to me? This 401k balance keeps going down. Yeah, you were great yesterday, God, but I, you know, what about tomorrow? And then God answers him with this funny request. Just listen to the heart of God. God says, listen, get up. Go and, and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. Notice now, he doesn't get up. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. Now those words might be familiar, but you've got to enter the story. There is this incredible power show for Elijah. The cave is rattling, the wind is tearing things apart, the earthquake is breaking the ground apart, the fire is burning up all the bushes around him. But God is not present in any of it. God is just showing something to Elijah about who he is and what he can do. And then after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard that, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. It was the whisper that got him. The presence of God got him up. The presence of God was more healing for Elijah than the power of God was. And a voice said to him, Now Elijah, having seen all of this, let me ask you a question. What are you doing here? Because I could understand why you'd be here if you didn't believe in me. I could understand how you might be here if you didn't know how much I love you. I could believe you might be here if I haven't been so faithful to you in the past. I think for those of us that say we follow Jesus, God might say, I could understand how if the coming life and the coming and the life and the miracles and the death and the resurrection of Jesus weren't the most provable and historically accurate event of their time period, I could understand how you might be in this cave. I could understand if you didn't look back over history and see what I did with 12 men and a couple of women and, women and how it changed the world. I could understand why you might be hiding. But I need to ask you, you people that are about to celebrate Easter Sunday, what are you doing? Why are you here? And now he responds, and this time I just think, it's just, I just think he's almost questioning himself. I, I, sense, I sense it coming with just tons of humility, regret. I've been very zealous for the Lord. And the Israelites rejected your covenant and tore down your altars and they put your prophets to death. I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me. 
And my guess is this is starting to sound kind of silly to him. And so here's what the Lord says to him, and I think he would say to you too. Go back. Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And then he gives him all this stuff, all of these plans. He says, when you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And then anoint Elisha son of Shephat from Abel and Mahaloah to succeed you as prophet. So Israel's getting a new king. There's going to be a new prophet. And then Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel. And Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all who right now, there's 7,000 back there, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. And why would God end the story here because I think two things. First is, Elijah, go back the way you came. Face your fears. Don't avoid them anymore. You lack faith. By the, you who lack faith. By the way, Elijah, God has not discounted you. God then gives Elijah all of this work to do. It's as if Elijah discovers, wait a minute, there's a plan going on? You mean all of these, these last months that I wasted and chickened out and made you look stupid, you're not going to hold against me? You're still in charge and I can still kind of reclaim my rightful place as your prophet? Yeah. Now get up. There's kings to anoint. And prophets to raise up. I got a plan. You need to go back. And as the band comes up, I want to close with this. It's Easter. There is a war raging out there. But if you're like me, most of it's raging in here. It's a war for your heart and your soul and your mind and your trust and your love and your identity and your peace. And what I know is tomorrow's fears often outweigh yesterday's faith. I get that because I'm good at bailing and running too. Oftentimes the lesser gods... And I don't know where you are this morning, what your cave is, where you find yourself. Some of you need to hear the question more than others. I I know that. But here it is. What are you doing here? Because if the grave is really empty, if Jesus not only turned water into wine, but death into a laughingstock, and he loves you, And he knows the journey might be too much for you. And he's saying, you know what, I understand you don't need to go it alone. I'm going to come with you. If that's all true, church, can I encourage you? Get up. Go back. He still has plans for you. He's still in complete control. And most of all, as you discover that, let your heart, in a world that is at war, let your heart know this. Jesus did not come to die for the dead to rest in peace, but for his followers to live in it.